is really good. Uh, oh, so I was saying, you know, there's there's different points in the book when the reader knows more than the characters, and then there's some points where the characters know more than the reader. But one thing I wanted to be in sync was this feeling that Jude and the reader are discovering at the same time just sort of how damaged he is and how ill-equipped he is to live in the world. But I just wanted to write a character who never got better in a lot of ways. And, um, and also, and also because I do think that in novels, and in American novels in particular, it's not just that it's about redemption, it's about forward movement, and it's about healing oneself. I mean, I think American books and Americans in general are very big on getting better. And so I wanted to write a character who fundamentally never does. And he doesn't really change at all. I mean, Jude is a very consistent character. His logic remains the same. His his methods of self-soothing remain the same. His way of comforting himself remains the same. His ways of punishing himself. I think the one character who really does change profoundly is JB. But Jude never does. And I, I think that, you know... I do think that there's a point in which some people are simply too damaged to be alive. And one of the things I wanted to have readers ask themselves is, is there a point in which someone really is better off being dead? You know, is there a point in which they've sustained such trauma or they've been so damaged that life itself, as wonderful and with as many joy-filled moments as it can have, is simply not worth the pain that it takes to keep going through one's days? And I don't know the answer to that, but I did want to write a character who for whom that wasn't an easy question with no, and there wasn't an easy answer, I guess. I mean, partly it's because I guess I'm so suspicious of therapy, and, you know, and um, it's something I've never done myself, and it's, you know, I had very big fights with my best friend, who's also my reader, about this, and one of his, I just find the profession, there's something false about it, because it's the one medical profession that will never give a patient permission to die, and I just thought, how can that be? You know, I mean, I think that, that for therapy, life is always the point of life, and I don't think life is always the point of life. And with this, part of, partly I want to do sort of a literary experiment. Can you make a sustaining character with whom you sympathize and empathize and is interesting and fascinating and frustrating but also lovable, but who fundamentally has sort of reached the limits of what he can do for himself. So on one hand, it was an interesting sort of literary exploration. And on the other, I think that there are people who have sort of reached the limits of what they can do or what can be done for them. And what do you do for people like that? I mean, how much, as a friend, let's say, you have a friend who's very damaged and very depressed, what is your responsibility to that person? What can you expect? What can you push for? And what can you allow? And, you know, I think that when we talk about friendships or talk about relationships, we tend to use the words, you know, by any means possible or whatever it takes. We tend to talk about death as if it's a losing of a battle. You know, even in medicine we talk about that, about she lost her fight, you know, to to cancer or to whatever. But that assumes that living is winning and dying is not. And I think that in America in particular, where everything is so much about living, about winning or losing, it seemed an awfully reductive and cruel way to think about suicide or to think about people who have chosen to simply stop whatever pain they're in. I mean, in some ways, Jude's 
tragedy. It's almost perhaps then, in those terms, that he survived the brutality that was meted out to him in the first 13, 14 years yeah, of his life. I mean, but, yes, I mean, I do think that, you know, I, I know a lot of people who have survived a lot of different types of trauma. And what's interesting to them is I think that it always takes a toll. It always, it always exacts a cost. But you don't really know what that cost is until you're an adult. And I think sometimes it takes people 20, 30 years to realize what I'm feeling now is a result of what happened to me earlier. I think that, and I think it's sometimes it's possible for people to live their entire lives without really recognizing how they've been wounded or how they've been damaged, but everyone else in their life recognizes it for them. But it's not that I don't think that people can overcome trauma or overcome it, or, or that people are always ruined by this type of abuse. But I do think that no one escapes it without paying a huge, huge toll. And I wanted to create a character, I think he is very hopeful, up until, right up until the end. But hope is, I think, is punishing, you know, it asks us to keep thinking that things will get better. And after a certain point, when things don't get better and you keep thinking it's your fault that they're not getting better, what does that do to a person? I mean, part of that is what, how he would define things getting better. And, mm. and so it was, was, the, was it a deliberate move on your part to give him everything that would be at the heart of the American dream? In part. I mean, that was that's one of the things my editor and I thought about. He just thought that Judah had too many talents. And to me, he just never had the talents he needed. You know, what he needed was an ability to be angry and an ability to be expressive, an ability to talk to someone, to trust someone, and those aren't skills he has. So all the skills he does have, you're right, are the ones that count in society. His intelligence, a certain type of it at least, he has money, he has abilities, but he doesn't have fundamental, I guess, I, the fundamental skills that he needs in order to be healthier, which is not a way of blaming him. It's simply that, it's simply, I think, I hope it makes people consider that the things we do value, the qualities we value in people are perhaps not the most useful qualities in the end. You know? They are for some people, but not for everyone. I, was, I wasn't quite sure I had to, to, to ask this, but there was a particular point in the book that I think probably along with a lot of his friends, I started to, I wouldn't say hate Jude, mm. but I found myself feeling incredibly um, frustrated mm. and annoyed. Mm -hmm. And then there was a rather nice line which was, I think Jude looks up at Willem and says he realised that being with him was almost like drudgery. And, there was, and I was wondering how deliberate there was a section where it, and it was punishing to read it, where it was just one problem that he was yeah. facing, physical problems, but also the, the result of that was yeah. the demands that he made of his friends at the same time that he was withholding any sense of demand. Yeah. And it was, it, I realised that he perhaps was beyond help, and it was yeah. a very strange place to suddenly yeah. find yourself in as a reader. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm glad, I'm glad you picked up on that. I mean, I, I do think that he's in a terrifically frustrating character, and one of the reasons he's frustrating is because I mean, aside from the fact that you wish you would choose other paths and you can see these sort of patterns of behavior and you can, you're frustrated because he is intelligent and also terrifically limited. And I think part of the reader's frustration comes from the fact that he, he is very high functioning and yet you think, well, kind of, why can't he get it together in certain ways? But I also think that when you're with someone as a friend or as a lover who repeats patterns of behavior sometimes you have to sort of look behind what's behind those patterns of behavior and really in this case it's just that he doesn't want to keep doing it anymore 
And I do think he's a manipulative character, but based sort of on sort of fear and, and, and history, not because I think he's a manipulative person. But I think he is someone who, as I said, has very few ways, again, based on past experience, to deal with the sorts of situations he's in, and so keeps returning to them again and again and again. I mean, to me, the other thing my editor and I thought about a lot was the cutting, but to me, it, it really is a leitmotif of the book, and that is his only solution, is that bag, is that stupid little bag that's all he has. And just as he was taught that that was a coping mechanism, no one has taught him anything else. And to me, I do, there are people like that in the world, I think, for whom the ways they've been taught to answer what the world face throws at them are very limited. And so as a friend, or someone in their lives, sometimes you have to kind of look very carefully at what's happened, what's not being said, and what's not being expressed, and what's not being done, and, and figure out if the real answer, or what they're really trying to tell you, lies in what they're not saying. What is cutting tell us about? There's something about cutting that that is had real meaning in, within the novel, but obviously has real meaning to people. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it's. I think it's the same. It's an addiction, and it's the same way as I think a heroin. It's the same thing as a heroin addiction. Something self-destructive, but I think in Jude's case, it's something that is an assertion of ownership over his own body, even if it means to debilitating ends. And I think anyone who's had this idea of selfhood taken away from them as much as he has, or as people in similar situations have, are constantly trying to remind themselves, even if it means to their own destruction, that they own who they are. You know, and in the end, all he has is his name and his razors. And I think that there's a point, I think we become very you know, greedy about what we have, even if it's something we don't love, or even if it's something that we know destroys us when we feel we have, there's nothing else we have, you know? I once read something about orphans who have been raised in these institutions in Eastern Europe, and they tend to collect bits of, just lots of string, like a pebble, and they carry it with them at all times in their pocket, because it's something that's theirs. And so even when they grow up and they're no longer in the institution, it's something that they can handle and remind of their personhood in a sense, of their autonomy. And I just thought, thought that was such a striking and powerful image of something, and it's the same for Jude. I mean, that although your circumstances might change and your context might change, they ultimately don't change your history at all. The only thing that can change your history is nothing really. It's it's simply about how well you're, you're equipped to answer it, and he's very ill-equipped to answer it. But he's a, yeah, he's a deeply frustrating character. I think. I mean, deeply frustrating. But is that strange? I, I thought what the most uttered phrase probably in the novel was "I'm sorry," but yeah. not. But both by Jude, but also people pushing him beyond what he was able to yeah. give. And that sense that friendship is, is about negotiating, I suppose, the debts that we feel. Right, right, I think so too. I mean, and also, you know, I mean, it, it gets trickier when, de- when friendship or any relationship is about how much permission do I give someone to do what I find ethically abhorrent? And can you do that if you know it's really the best thing for someone? My editor and I fought a lot about I'm sorry too. But, you know, again, it's, it's something that you want to say but is a very flimsy form of comfort. Oh, thank you so much. That's gorgeous.
Did you want to push those moments? To yes, the, okay, there was a, there was a, because I did feel this. I said there was a section to probably about three quarters of the way through where a velo- the velocity of Jude's problem seemed to be never, never ending. Yeah. And I remember it did feel like you were in a. It's it's an exaggerated book, you know, I mean, there's nothing subtle about the book, and I really wanted to, I really push the conventions of a literary novel and the sort of restraints of the contemporary literary novel, and I think that we are in an era of literary novels where it is about distance, in a sense, and this book is not about distance, it's about sort of largeness and exaggeration of emotions, and so I really did want it to feel a little vulgar in a lot of ways, you know, a little um, extreme in a lot of senses. So we talked, was it what, two, a year? Yeah, two years ago, 18 months ago, something like that. And your first book shares certain grand themes, certain yeah. characters, but in, in fundamental ways, in terms of form and storytelling, it's very different. Right. Perhaps in that, that's one area, that novel was about restraint that was very artfully handled. I think you were already writing a little life there. Yeah, I was. I'm curious about the transition from debut novel to, 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 to second novel. Was it's, that a, it's easier because you've done it once. You know you can do it. Okay. You know, so it's you know kind of what you're good at and what you're not good at. You have a much better sense of pacing. I think you just know you're just more comfortable because you've proven to yourself that it is something you can accomplish. So in that way, it was much easier. And probably when I met you, I was almost done with a little life actually. So I probably finished in. May of that year or so. So it was, and it was a very different experience. I mean, it was a much easier book to write. It came to me much more completely. And it's much, although I think structurally it's a very complicated book, this book is, it was a structure I had in mind from the start. And there's just much less research of a certain type. There's much less scientific research. There's much less historical research. The research I did, which was interesting, was about talking to people, was about careers, which is always interesting research to do, I think. Um, But it was much less complicated in a lot of ways. Is it is it personal? I know it's not exactly autobiographical, but there were echoes of of you. I thought sometimes in in Jude, perhaps as the slightly as the cultural outsider, the one who appreciated New York differently from the others. Yeah, sure. Um, or thought he did. In that way, definitely. And I also think also in the sense of. I think a lot of what the characters think about aging and about middle age is, is are things that I was sort of thinking about at the time as well. What sort of things were you... Well... If you'd like it. Mm. So this is really good, by the way. I'm have some carrots. I think the sense that... Would you like a carrot? Oh, yeah, I'd love some carrots. Thank you. Thank you. are doing a great job. I suppose about about. Mm. You're still doing a good job. I yeah, didn't see it. Yeah. No, you didn't okay. see it. <laughs> about how relationships change fundamentally as you get older. You know, I mean, I think that this book is about friendship. It's particularly about male friendship, mm. but it is fundamentally about how friendship, as much as any relationship 
is one that you know takes a great deal of work and a great deal of maintenance. And it's something, thank you, that I think as people start having children and getting married, sort of falls by the wayside as a lesser kind of relationship. You know, it's something that yeah. you grow out of. Um, in oh, thank you. In that there's a higher no, fine, thank you. That there's a higher form of relationships, and that relationship is spouse and spouse or parent and child. And so, which I don't agree with, but I think a lot of, I think it naturally happens in a lot of people's yeah. lives, right around when you hit, you know, your mid-30s or so. Um, I think it happens less in New York, for example, because so many people do live these sorts of different versions of adulthood. But there's an arc, you know, you... You're great friends in your 20s. In your 30s, you get married. Your 40s are all about your kids. Your 50s, you get divorced. And then friendships become primary again. And just from sort of watching some people I know go through that exact pattern, it's been fascinating, especially women who are a little older and sort of just assume they would get married. There's this sort of interesting rediscovery for them of the complications and, and the pleasures of non-sexual friendship. And that's also something that I was interested in watching in people. Just kind of watching how friendship ebbs and, and also steadies someone in a lot of cases. Can I ask this, this the personal good. question? Of course. How does that work? Are you in a relationship? I was recently in a relationship, and he didn't live in, in New York, which was really great, actually. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I do have very close friends. There's some, there are relationships I work very hard on. I'm personally not interested in getting married, um, which is different from companionship, but the legal, but legal marriage I'm not so sure about. But what is it about marriage? I'm just slightly suspicious of the government, you know, legislating a relationship, period, between two adults. And I just... I, I don't think it's... I don't think marriage is a good thing for women in general, or it hasn't traditionally been. And... I don't know, it just seems a little bit futile, you know? I mean, I just don't see that there's a need for it if you don't have children. If you do, I think it's different. Um, but if you don't, I'm not sure what the ne you know what's necessary about it. Unfortunately, you know, in America, I think it is much more necessary because it is a country that's obsessed with marriage, and you know, it, it's not for all sorts of reasons. It's easier, but it's not something that I'd ever particularly wanted for myself. And you know, very few of my friends are legally married as well, um, and not because they can't, just because they're not. Um, How about relation, relationships and this idea of longevity? Is that something you associate more with friendship than with... No, I think, I think that, as I said, I think there's something different between companionship and being with a partner and, and marriage. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people are simply gun-shy about marriage because their parents have such horrible divorces and, you know, and... and I, I don't know why, but it makes the idea of it makes me very personally very uncomfortable. But I uh, <laughs> is that something that I, I, one of the reasons you don't go to therapy to not have to maybe not to, okay. maybe not. <laughs> but my I mean also just for pure reasons of 
finances. I just find it very disturbing that you would turn over everything that you've earned to somebody else.